Welcome to Healthcare 360. I'm your host, Scott Burgess. Join me in welcoming my guests as we'll discuss the ins and outs of the healthcare landscape and examine what is really happening inside big healthcare. Back by popular demand, Dr. Paul Summerside is joining me today to follow up on the cliffhanger from podcast number 10, Big Data and the Unrealized Hopes of the EMR System. In episode number 10, Dr. Summerside detailed his experience as an emergency room physician. Today, he is here to take us through the historical perspective of medical documentation and look to the future of artificial intelligence in medicine. Today, we'll gain incredible insight into the rationales for the EMR, where it went wrong, and examples of how we can learn from the military and NFL's methods of collecting and using data. Let's keep this conversation going, and thank you for being part of the Healthcare 360 Nation. Hey everybody, welcome back. This is Scott Burgess with Healthcare 360. In front of me, we have a guest where we left a little bit of a cliffhanger in episode number 10 with Dr. Paul Summerside. We had a couple open questions there about the EMR and data aggregation and AI machine learning and where those trends are going. And we're going to couple that on top of his experience from what he was working with before, what he's working with now, what he's seeing as the major trends going forward by popular requests. Dr. Paul Summerside, how are you, man? How's everything? Good. Good to hear from you, Scott. Where we left it was kind of technology and medicine and data, and where do we see that now? And there's a lot of different things, obviously, in technology, but I guess I'm going to move towards more data and information technology end of it. Certainly, there's a lot of technology as far as equipment and everything, but I think I'll move more towards the discussion of data. When you start talking about the data and uh, big quotation marks, big data, you immediately have to turn to the electronic medical record. And the history of that, you know, it's huge, enormous promises that were made in the industry and then what actually happened. You know, the idea was that if we had a better data collection tool, we would collect a lot more data, that data would be analyzable in a format that would be more easy to obtain good information from large data sets. That was the idea, anyway. This is circa 1997-8, when this was being talked about a little bit. But the first EMR, our group was an adopter of the first EMR. Mm -hmm. It was put out by Allscripts. And as the name would say, it was primarily addressing the issue of prescriptions and medications. The idea at that, and that's a real rudimentary electronic medical record, was that there are errors, that doctors' handwriting was poor. And so pharmacists would fill mistaken prescriptions based on poor handwriting or the extra effort of calling the doctors back and saying, you know, what did this say or, or what have you. The original all scripts was introduced as an electronic format where they could get prescriptions kind of typed out by the doctor or their staff. And then the prescriptions would be held in memory, which again, this is like 1998 or so, so that you could look back on the medications you prescribed. And then they started with some rudimentary uh, medical interactions, medicine interactions software. And that primarily was designed to eliminate what's called a transcription error or the writing of the order from point A to point B. It was pretty simple, and it was actually tremendously popular. I think that's a good caveat about technology in general. Does it serve you, or does the re- technology require you to serve it? 
And uh, the technology served us. You know, it, it was quick, it was simple, and it eliminated transcription errors. It worked pretty well. From that then, they thought, well, let's just hold medical record, everything the doctor is writing or dictating. The doctors were filling out their records by one of two ways, predominantly. They were either writing them, which had the same transcription problems as prescriptions. Doctors were in a big hurry. They're writing really fast. Their handwriting degraded over the course of their careers. I can speak from experience. The more and faster you wrote, the messier it got. So to get rid of that transcription error, most systems went to dictation. So dictation was an exact transcription of what the doctor said. It was pretty efficient. A physician could just speak into either a dictaphone or a recording device, and then those records were later just transcribed by someone who had training in medical language and uh, nuance and had a tremendous medical vocabulary. My wife, Michelle, did that for a short period of time when my twins were first born. That was primarily how records were built. So they said, well, transcription's kind of expensive, so maybe we can go to an electronic medical record and have the doctors fill out everything in an electronic format, kind of a template, you know, like form. Right. And then the, the computer could save all of those formats. Every one of those fields became then, uh, was a searchable field. And then they could say, look, it's a searchable field that's filled out in a certain way and we can search it and we can aggregate data. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? We could look and see, you know, 10,000 patients that were all six feet tall and had blue eyes. Right. So that was the idea. How did that work out? Well, the answer is not too damn well. A number of things occurred. We took transcription error, which is a random error. You think it's an A and it's a C, or that's a random error. And we introduced what's called systematic error. So you go in and now instead of actually saying something or writing something, you've got this cursor in your hand and you're in a big hurry and you're rolling down a drop-down menu of symptoms or you're rolling down a drop-down menu of medications or you're rolling down a drop-down menu of dosages. You make systematic errors, you make clicking errors click on the wrong one and you've got a completely wrong medication and you don't even recognize it and it goes off to pharmacy. It's virtually instantaneous. And because you've now introduced this idea that it's faultless, you don't really review your work like you used to either, right? So as soon as you start to depend on the reliability of something, you quit examining it. And the pharmacist the same way and the nurses the same way. They kind of started making this assumption that this technology had eliminated the mistakes in prescriptions it was so clear what the prescription was, what the order was, what the symptoms were. Because it was typed out in plain sight, they quit asking themselves, did this actually make sense? For the first time in my career as a quality officer, I started seeing women being discharged from the hospital on prostate medicine. We made other mistakes. We never made that kind of mistake. I think the masses dosage errors were introduced because of the drop down. You know, you do it quick, it's either one in a thousand or one in 10,000 or one in a hundred thousand. When the pharmacists would get a written order, they would think about it and say, hey, does this make sense as they're trying to figure out that squiggly handwriting? Their first question is, does this make sense? And they would apply their training to it. And frequently that would lead them to call or whatever. And it was like a real check in the system. That's why we train pharmacists so that they check doctors who write the wrong thing down. 
But now these prescriptions are coming across in clear, unambiguous black and white, and you get in the habit of, well, it's perfectly clear what the doctor wants, right? There's no ambiguity here, so they just fill it. It's a natural human tendency, so we kind of degraded those intermediate steps, both from the nurses and the pharmacists, as far as how they really looked at stuff critically and asked themselves if this stuff makes sense. Let's go on to the more nuanced part of the EMR, electronic medical record, which was, what is a record? What's a medical record? It's supposed to be, and it had always been in the past, really a scientific document. That doctors, we were all trained as scientists, and some of us later went on and became more technicians as we learned technical things. And we were all trained in scientific analytics and thought, and that is how we were supposed to record all encounters. There was a great deal of discipline taught to us in medical school about how to observe and how to recognize nuance and then how to record these nuances as accurately as possible in a real scientific document so that you could later look for variations between August and October and November, or your partner or you could communicate between one another about very nuanced conditions that were going on with patients, everything from their mood to their skin color. To put that in perspective, a lecture I went to back at the Iowa Literary School that was a physician uh, talking about, they've got a big literature writing program there, late 80s. Okay. Early 90s. And he was a writer. It's called the Iowa Writers Workshop. And he was a physician, but also a writer. And he was talking about uh, the difficulties of communication with patients, between patients and physicians. And broadly speaking, uh, he said, you know, the average person has somewhere around a couple thousand words in their what's called functional vocabulary, two, three thousand words. And what does that mean? It means that you use these words frequently And you know exactly what you mean when you say them, or you think you know exactly what somebody means when you hear them. That's like the average person walking around, say 3,000 words. The average college graduate has a functional vocabulary of about 10,000 words. Big difference. And not surprisingly, when you go to medical school, you learn, again, this is according to this writer's workshop, about it, and it sounds right to me, you learn about an additional 20,000 words. Wow. In the span of four to eight years, you know, depending on your training, talking about 3,000 to 10,000 to 30,000. And why do we learn those words, all those Latin words? What was the purpose of physicians being trained in that language? It's like a whole new language. We learned those words to record nuance so that we could communicate amongst peers very subtle differences the only way that we could communicate one to another and day to day and create a record was through our speech and through our written thoughts or dictated thoughts. So the idea was you had to be a very careful observer and you had to have this very large reservoir of nuanced words, like, you know, 20 different words for red and all the different types of skin and hair and the quality of people's voices and the way in which they modulated their voices and how their language was spoken. And, you know, every one of these has multiple, multiple words that you learn so that you can describe. And so doctors were trained in order to put these scientific documents together in this exhaustive vocabulary. 
And they would use that vocabulary to create a record. And there, there was structure within the record that we were taught about how we would think about things so that there was order to the notes so that it was easier to understand from one doctor. And it was a familiar order and a, a standardization of the manner in which this information was communicated. You would get very subtle nuances. Like I could tell from one partner to the next and just how they spoke about a patient in their record whether the patient was difficult or not, <laughs> whether the surgery went well or not. <laughs> Write a book, The Diaries of the Unwritten Surgeon. <laughs> and I was an ER physician, so you would get these really bizarre encounters. Through the richness of the dictation about everything that was going on at the house and the police and then this happened and how they ended up in the ER, and you would get an incredibly rich sense of the environment in which the encounter occurred and everything surrounding it, from the family and the speech and the level of anxiety or anger. You would read this note and the best, best physicians painted an incredibly accurate and detailed picture of the encounter. So that's a, a really good background of what you were dealing with before. As you are pulling the informatics together from all areas of the hospital, and you just did a, an unbelievable job identifying where all that information was and, and how that was relayed back into the EMR, the early age of the EMR. But now pulling the informatics from all areas of the hospital where do you see those trends going in today's environments where artificial intelligence is in this infantile stage, as well as machine learning, and eventually it's going to be fully automated, autonomous, where computational medicine is going to start playing a forefront role? That's a good lead in, actually, you know, because here's the thing, right? The information was in sort of almost like reading a novel kind of format. Mm-hmm. Well, along came the computer engineers, and they're like, well, that's too complicated. We can't record that. So they created fields and structure and essentially templates to reduce the information down into nuggets that they wanted to capture. So instead of 20 words for red, they might have two. And all the nuance was lost. Now you've got reality, which is occurring, and then you've got physicians who are trained with this huge vocabulary to try and accurately reflect reality as closely as possible and then document it. And then you have the actual record. And of course, at every step, you lose something, right? Even up to interpretation as well. Exactly. Yeah. And as a scientist, you're trained to try and keep your own interpretation out of it, right? right? That's what scientists are supposed to have some discipline. You know, some are better than others, let's just say. <laughs> you know, that's the idea, right? And so what you get in has this wealth of information, but you still lose some and you still get some bias introduced. Well, now the electronic medical record comes down and it's an engineered format, which dramatically Dramatically reduces the amount of information from reality to what goes into the machine. It would be incomplete at that point? Extremely incomplete. It's at best, it's an abstract of what happened. It's like you read an entire journal article that's 25 pages long, and then you get a two paragraph abstract. Right. That's the EMR. Mm -hmm. The electronic medical record data entry system is actually an abstract format of real events. I actually had a conversation today with someone where they said that it's actually 1990s Citrix algorithms. Yes. So today's EMR, they say, oh, it's over antiquated. It's not completely antiquated. It shouldn't even be there at the moment. So there's reality and physicians are trained, really disciplined to try and reflect reality as closely as they can in their notes. And then they get handed this EMR 
that prohibits them from doing that. It's like you're created this artist who's trained years and years to paint, and then you tell them you've only got to paint by numbers, and you've only got six numbers to paint with. <laughs> and now you've got to create a record out of that. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to do. And so it becomes difficult. It's, I guess, an interface problem, right? It's like when you're interfacing two databases and the one trunk line has a huge amount of information in it, but the other interface will only take a trickle. Right, exactly. And it's an interface problem. So the interface between human and machine was horrible in the EMR. It was difficult for people to use because we don't think and talk that way. Mm -hmm. We don't describe complex human interactions that way. And so when you put it into that format to try and do a really good job, it's tremendously frustrating. So here's how physicians and uh, people respond to that. They go, well, screw it. I'll just put a template together because it's too hard. Well, a template is a pre-filled out form. And the EMR became a templated format so that I would say upper respiratory infection uncomplicated and all the blanks would get filled in. Right. The computer would recognize that and all the blanks would get filled in or a drop down menu would recognize that and I would click on it. And then maybe I would fill in a couple modest deviations from the norm, but basically one record started to look just like another. When I would go in and review records in 2015, one surgery would look almost identical to another. One ER visit would look very identical to another. Uh, one urgent care visit would look very identical to another. Very similar, if not identical, I should say. And the nuance is lost. And with that nuance, you know, is a tremendous amount of information is lost. To make it even worse, there's a function in the electronic medical record called copy-paste forward. You didn't even have to fill the template out. You just right-clicked and pasted to the next note and copied it. <laughs> so if you had... That's a disaster mistake right there. What scientific document, again, let's go back to the original purpose of the EMR. What scientific document would allow templating and copy-paste forward? Oh, ever. How did that ever happen? Well, the EMR wasn't being adopted at all, really. It had very little uh, stickiness for these reasons that we've talked about. Physicians really didn't like it. Mm -hmm. Well, along came the Affordable Care Act, and the government searched for big data. And they got sold a bill of goods from the EMR industry. You know, palms are greased, I'm sure. Eventually, it came out that big systems would get a bonus if they adopted the electronic medical record and eventually get a penalty on your charges. So now, all of a sudden, the big systems are going, oh, my God, we got to do an electronic medical record, even though all our doctors hate it and it, it doesn't work very well. Got to adopt it to get this extra bonus money. But that was between 2008 and 2010 when the major adoption took place, right? 8 to 10, 12. Yeah, right in there. I, I remember when I was up in New York City at that time, and I remember seeing what was going on, and everyone was scrambling. And at that point, I had no idea what Cerner or Epic were. And I was like, what's Epic? <laughs> what's so Epic about it? And I'm making a joke about it. And they think, <laughs> well, that was Epic. <laughs> <laughs> and they came back, and they were like, hey, if we don't have this in by, we're going to lose X amount of dollars. I was like, oh, okay they almost still missed their deadlines because no one knew how to implement the technology. Yeah, it was very inefficient. The productivity under their format, this machine-engineered format, we had people that were in charge of implementation telling us you were going to be at 50 to 60 to 70% of your previous productivity. Now, who adopts technology that reduces your productivity? 
<laughs> and reduces the accuracy of your work. Right. Well, that's what we did because we got a bonus. And you guys like, why did the government, why did the insurance companies get so hepped up on this then? Well, here's why. The medical record, as we said, was designed as a scientific document. It was supposed to be as nuanced and factual and research-oriented as possible. The electronic medical record, the back door of that was, it was a billing tool. The insurance companies previously were having to read these complicated medical records if they wanted to figure out what happened with a patient. Well, guess what? They don't like that. They like something that goes through a machine. Right. So they can get the electronic data in a formatted field fashion from the electronic medical record, and they can process bills cheaply, and so can the government. It doesn't matter if they've lost all this data or not. They're just trying to get a bill paid. Because you can automate scan and read, you can get those CPT codes and just automate the entire process. Right. And I will, uh, this is editorial comment totally. It became also because of the manner they started to adopt billing algorithms, both the government and the private insurers, saying you have to have these fields, these 15 fields filled out to get this code paid. And if you want more than that, you have to have these 18 fields filled out. And if you want more than that, you have to have 24 fields filled out, making it more difficult to get paid. And this is what actually happened. Most of the doctors won't go to the trouble to get all these details down. So we won't have to pay as much. Well, the EMR guys figured this out. So then on the sales side of it, they said, look, you can create these templates that automatically fill out all these fields so you get paid the maximum amount. All of a sudden, the hospitals and systems are saying, my goodness, I'm going to get a bonus from the government if I adopt this. And not only that, I will get higher pay per service event. Now I can use this engineered tool to force the doctors to fill out all these fields so they can get a higher charge. That's unreal what you just said. In the past, the insurance companies had to actually read through the document. They wanted to contest a charge. Right. Look how easy that made it. EMR started really kind of a dueling algorithm between the insurance companies and the government that changed the algorithms a little bit. And it's too complicated for this. That's a whole nother discussion. And then the doctors and and hospitals wouldn't get paid. And then the doctors and hospitals would get another update from the EMR company showing them how they can create a template that will duel with the algorithm that's not paying them so they can get paid for what they actually did. It completely lost significance as a scientific record. And it became really predominantly a billing tool. So look how far afield we've come. We started out with a transcription error of writing prescriptions and using a tool that actually worked pretty well to all of a sudden dumping the whole idea of a scientific document and coming out with a a billing form like you would get at the DOT to sign up for your license or something. I'm really curious to going back to the, the AI portion of it. So if we have problems with present EMR and how it's structured, those systems won't be able to handle that magnitude, correct? Well, no, actually, they can handle the magnitude fine. I mean, computers think really fast. What is the problem and why IBM's Watson has had such a difficult time with this is AI needs perfectly pure real data to work. 
Right. The template says standard physical exam. It all gets filled out. Two pages go into the electronic medical record. There's drop-down menus where you're supposed to be able to pull out common exceptions. And some of those get filled in and some of them don't. But as far as the computer AI big data is concerned, it's the real truth. See, AI is abstracting the information of the electronic medical record as if that's all the information there is, and all of it is true. Mm. Well, let's talk about what we just said. It isn't all the information. It's a tremendously truncated interface problem between reality and what gets into an electronic engineered format. You've lost a ton of real-world information about what happened in that room or what happened in that surgery or what happened in that ER. You've lost a tremendous amount of information, and then you've put it into a templated format of some kind, which also has systematic error included in it. AI cannot deal with that. AI is fantastic with dealing with pure information streams. You give it pure information streams out of instruments, AI is great with that. It's unambiguous. There's new nuance to it. It's absolute truth. That kind of information, you fade AI all kinds of templated information, copy-paste forward information, truncated information because they don't have 35 fields of red on the form, so you just pick a close one. You don't really say the patient's agitated anymore. You just ignore it. Yeah. So all this nuance that's supposed to go into big data is lost. So what does AI do with that? Well, the answer is nothing. Aren't the algorithms being designed to recognize that now? Well, interestingly, these engineered formats, I think you alluded to, were like primitive, but they still exist. They didn't anticipate the tremendous advancement in technology that now allows us with real language interpretation to, for the most part, dictate to a computer and get actually what you said right back to where we started where you could actually get transcripted real information from the doctor into the chart again. What was assumed you couldn't do easily before, you don't have to search by fields anymore. You can search the actual language. Computers can search the actual language for all this nuanced data. But that wasn't anticipated in 1995, 6, when they were writing, started writing this stuff. It was dumbed down. But all the systems are built. Yeah. And these databases are full of this truncated, and I would maintain corrupt data right now, particularly around what I would call operational data. If it's static data, like your temperature or your blood pressure, those sorts of things are probably the most reliable things in the medical record. But anything other than that, I'm highly skeptical of. So what needs to happen to have that corrected? So what does AI and big data, what does it do well? It can take massive amounts of pure data and analyze it and make sense out of it and look for trends. So let's ask ourselves, what are the sources, potential sources of pure, unfiltered, uncorrupted data? How about video? (laughs) Right. How about video? What is the military and what is sports done? Does the military ask a fighter pilot to fill out a form about a dogfight over the Middle East or wherever they are? No, it's all on the video. They've gone way beyond that. They've got every word that's spoken, the inflection of their voice, their heart rate, their blood pressure, 
every piece of digital feed in that aircraft is plugged into the same database. They pull that all down. It's real. It's live. It is unfiltered and analyzable then because all the data is there. All the data they're capable of capturing is there. And it's unambiguous data. It's not a pilot saying uncomplicated dogfight template and 35 pages go into his after action report. That's not going on. So you know that middle camera that's in the field, the floating camera? They're using that. And they're actually analyzing hand placement and hike off the ball, how fast they're moving and how far their kicks are when they mule kick. This offensive and defensive line alone, they know exactly where to beat someone and how to beat them. That's how much they go into depth with the video in the NFL. It's amazing. Yeah, and sports, the same thing, right? So sports, they're not just analyzing games. They're analyzing every single moment of practice. They are attending to every detail. It is recorded. It is analyzed. And that's where sports analytics is coming from. As you said, they're looking at the angles of people's elbows and their knees and the width of their stances and millimeters. And this is what we should be doing in medicine. We have the technology now to do that kind of analytics. And instead, we're sitting with this DOS-based electronic medical record, really. And look at what we're asking of our physicians now. Well, guess what? We have better technology than that. We're not asking Aaron Rodgers to dictate a note about how the game went. Right. And then that's our only source of information on the performance of, of himself and everyone around him. People would think that was ludicrous. We have four or five-hour surgeries that are incredibly complex, and the only record we have about what really occurred in there is largely coming from subjective interpretations of the staff in the room, written after the fact. So let me ask you this. All that information pushing forward a little bit. So I found with artificial intelligence that either people are up to adopt or they're not up to adopt. So we have late adopters or early adopters of technology. So as that's evolving going through, and this is the new standard moving forward through video and through as much automation as you can get, nothing's autonomous yet. Uh, That's why I don't personally believe that robots are going to do what they say they can do until they're fully autonomous because they're still manual direct and go, if you will. Why the lack of early adoption? If it's going to set the new standards, why isn't everyone jumping on top of this? Okay, my editorial comment. Sure, go. Preface that. You know, systems are incredibly cynical right now, and they have the problem of sunk cost. Okay. So they bought this huge idea that was promoted to them that technology was going to revolutionize how they were able to do medicine and keep records and make these fantastic improvements in medical care by having access to all this data. They really didn't do a very good job of it, as we've talked about. So now they're stuck. One system I was talking to out east has spent more than, and this is not a huge system. It's like a six or eight hospital system. It's big, but it's not huge. 700 million into their electronic medical record installation. They're going to listen to Paul R. Summerside on a podcast, and they're going to say, oh, I guess we're going to dump that and something that actually works. Did you say 700 million? 700 million. Oh my gosh. And that does not include long-term reductions in efficiency because the tool is so difficult to use. Doctors and nurses are not able to see patients and do the same things they could do before as quickly. That's astounding. 700 million doing something that's still inefficient. Yeah, it's worse. 
these administrators are understandably incredibly cynical about someone walking in the door and said, you know, that electronic medical record that we sold you guys all on really doesn't work. We want you to dump that and go to something that actually works. That's a tough ask, but it's a real ask, and it's an ask that's going to have to happen. It's sort of, I compare it to even a small hospital, relatively modest-sized hospital back in the 80s when I was getting into medicine, had these huge mainframes in the basement. Huge. Like the whole basement of the hospital, half of it maybe, would be taken up by this mainframe computer and these cards that they would feed. And they were sold that this was going to run their lab better and all. And the same thing, it didn't. It was incredibly expensive. It was slow. It couldn't really analyze anything. You had to hire half a dozen people just to keep the thing running. And all of a sudden, along came desktop computers and everyone, like overnight, those things were gone. The computing power changed, but it didn't go easily. And it wasn't, there was no lack of pain to get rid of all those old mainframes. The reality is now we have the technology to create a real scientific document. What actually happened? What was actually said? And how was it said? And what was the tone of voice? I mean, AI can start interpreting voice tone and inflection. Why don't we adopt it, the military uses? We can just rebrand it. I mean, or they can... The military is pragmatic. <laughs> and I think their budget is probably a little bigger than most hospitals. But they're the dumbed down version they can create for sure. But it's a doable thing. But it requires... There's a whole industry that is behind the status quo right now, but doesn't easily solve the issue. That was really, in my opinion, behind the all of a sudden rapid adoption of the very poor piece of technology. And that is because it was good for the people paying the bills, mm. that it created an easy form that they could process. They're interested in, you know, they're not, they don't really care about the science of medicine. Do you think any of the insurance companies care about whether the document that sends the bill to them is an accurate scientific document that can be searchable through AI to make new discoveries about human condition? No. no. They're interested in what is the cheapest way that I can get a bill sent to me and process a payment and deny it, preferably. Uh, or if I have to pay it, the simplest way I can get it processed and pay it. That's all they care about. So that is something that has to be understood. And that the process under which patients are charged and billed has all been incorporated into this sort of template system. So that has to be recognized as separate from actually recording what happened analyzing it to actually take better care of patients and make real scientific discoveries still possible in medicine. The amount of data we've lost with the MR is uh, almost incalculable in my my opinion. Really? That's a shame. And it's so much, it's such a cost as well. It's not, it's not cheap. When uh, the EMR was adopted in our own hospital, we were told it was going to take six months, roughly, training. People were going to seminars. People were being excused from work. We were having to double staff clinics because they couldn't get the work done fast enough. Now, is that a good piece of technology or a bad piece of technology? How many factories would adopt a piece of technology that made them fundamentally less efficient for the rest of their existence? Nobody, right? I mean, it's, it was insane. And it was because the technology was not adapted for operational purposes. It wasn't adapted for scientific purposes. It was adapted, in my opinion, purely on the financial end of things. It was an easy format to record financial transactions. 
So what has to happen to break the barrier for the adoption rate to start those verticals that everyone's looking for? Do we have to go back to lobbyists and say, hey, this is what we need to do? No, I don't think we need that. I think we just need some truth tellers to really sit down with people and say, hey, look, here's where we're at. And there's been some really good advances in technology in the last five years or so to make it possible to do the things we're talking about. So computing power has increased dramatically over the last few years. The ability to analyze real data, you know, real voice data and video data, the stuff they're doing when the NBA and the NFL is now a reality where five, 10 years ago, it was not possible or it was incredibly expensive. And then saving that data. So saving real video, saving real audio. That used to be a pipe dream, right? Saving video of the VHS era, we're not that far from it. You just couldn't do it. You couldn't save all the video from an operating room. Well, now we can. We really can. In the, in the scope of cost, it's not that prohibitive compared to the overall operating costs of running a hospital. You know what I find particularly interesting in that topic point is because of cloud services, you know, AWS and, and Google Cloud was the two biggest. I don't know why the hospitals are so afraid. They're like, no, we need to control that repository. We need to have it local. But now they have to build an infrastructure to support that, and they have to maintain their server levels, they have to maintain their firewalls and their viruses and ransomware versus just offloading that to somebody else who's already positioned and who has the best technology in the world. Yeah, that's a great point. Along with this data now and these large formatted data files, what's in there? Their social security number, their age, and all their financial data. <laughs> that's what people are afraid of getting stolen. I don't think people are going to hack into a hospital to find out what color my eyes are or when I had my vasectomy. <laughs> right. You know, they're going to hack into the hospital to get millions of financial records from people. Right. And to your point, Google and Amazon. Amazon and make a list, their security is so much better than any hospital's security, and they can maintain it on an incremental cost that's so much less than what you can try and do. You in I can't believe that if you look at it, that it wouldn't be safer to store this cloud in a real sense, that it's an illusion of security and control to try and have local servers. I think that's a barrier. You know, there's this sort of I hate to say it like this, but it's got, I got my money in the safe, so then it's safe, right? Well, that's not true. But it's like, I got my data in the server in the basement, so now it's safe. But if I put it out in the cloud, now it's not safe. I think that's an illusion of, of data security to think that they keep it in-house, that somehow it's safer. I agree. But then at the same time, and, and this is, I know this because I'm still a consultant in hospitals, and you know this, is how many mini recording devices, so even when you have it pushed out to the cloud, how many times are those little mini recording devices that are used inside the operating room store that local repository of what they're doing? A lot of them do. And if they're not buying new equipment, if they're not maintaining the firmware to make sure for the firewalls and viruses, just in one hack point to self to worry about. My point is they're not protecting the small piece of equipment. And then they're worried about the large piece, but you need to focus on the little things first. For sure, if you looked at the system differently than we have now, you would arrange your security differently. Because right now, no one thinks that information is used for anything or is useful at all. So there hasn't been a great deal of attention to it. But the reality is all those digital feeds in the operating room are a wealth of information, of truth, scientific truth. Can physicians actually be scientists anymore? There's no scientist that would take this horrible data that we're acquiring right now and try and make sense of it. Well, if they were offered the opportunity of 
saying, hey, we can get the real data off the video in the room. We can get the real data out of all the instruments in the room about everything from the air quality to every single heartbeat. Focus on automatically acquiring all this data. Think about how more efficient that is. When guys are playing football, do they have to think about doing anything in particular so the data can be acquired from the football game or practice? No. No. So why should the doctors and nurses have to do that? Of course they shouldn't. That data acquisition should all be automated. And so the doctors just focus on their work and the nurses just focus on their work, just like the athletes just focus on executing their play. And at the end of the case, the doctor maybe has a couple comments, but says end case. That's the record. Right. When do you think when do you think there's gonna be a full bear hug adoption <laughs> of this technology? Three years, five years. I know digital surgery 4.0 in true augmented reality, where it's assistive surgery, is going to make a really big push in about three years. I hate to speculate. I think it's going to be, I talked about the mainframe and the laptop. I think it's going to come in a rapid cataclysmic fashion. Once it starts, I think the reevaluation and the discard of the current EMR uh, technology and the manner in which we use it, particularly in areas where the EMR is particularly bad, is where a process that goes on over a period of time is being recorded. It's static data like we talked about. The EMR, you can search for static data points like blood pressure and height and weight. But you want to say what happened in a four-hour surgery in the electronic medical record is currently used. It's really bad. So I think we focus on those areas first, and I think that we'll get relatively, I hope we'll get relatively rapid adoption there because it is so much better, you know, that we will be able to focus on areas like the operating room, high risk, high reward environments where mistakes and incremental improvement have really high return. And that goes against your earlier comments in, in episode number one about the cost curve and the performance curve, all those analytics we talked about there just financially are going to pay threefold when the data shows where we're making our mistakes, where our improvements are, and what trends we need to keep going for those verticals to rise. Absolutely. It allows you to, we talked about perfection is the sum of many insignificant details, but perfection is hardly insignificant. That's a Robert Piercing quote, but that's real science accumulating all those little details, the teamwork issues between all the staff in the operating room, all the little things, the door opening, the distractions, the movements, the failures in equipment, all these things that are going on and are not being analyzed and recorded right now. Analyzing that is going to be the next leap forward in safety, and it's going to be efficient, and we're going to start learning. There's an old saying in science, you can't learn anything if you can't study what you did. Right. It sounds simple, right? You can't do a second experiment unless you can study what you did the first time. How are you going to get any better? And we aren't able to study what we do right now in the operating room. When you have a safety issue right now, you have to go interview staff and ask them what happened. Well, can you imagine after a game, let's talk about the Super Bowl, if they went around and started interviewing guys why they lost and why they won? How good would that be for planning your next practice or your next draft? Right. We tell our daughters all the time, uh, our twins who play travel softball, we're trying to get them on to watching film after every game or tournament that they have over the weekends. And one of them particularly is very much against it. And I said, look, video doesn't lie. 
Yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't. My coach told me that. I'm telling my daughter that. I'm like, you would learn so much from watching yourself perform on video. You can see your little techniques that you need to tweak. You can see what you're doing well and how to exhaust that and keep doing it four times over. And inside the OR, when you're talking about mannerisms and behaviors, all that's going to be recorded and all that's going to be corrective. So just on just the culture and the ecosystem of that culture in hospitals, it will vastly improve. I'll just, you know, go out on a limb here. The level of professionalism and behavior would improve geometrically, instantaneously. <laughs> when everybody in the operating room knew what they said and what they were doing was being recorded. Just like it has in practices and on-field analysis everywhere else, I'm sure that the behavior in the cockpits of aircraft improved once they knew everything was being recorded. I don't think this is a leap in, in human behavior. It's funny, you know, you and I are just a little bit generational apart as far as our sporting careers. But to follow up on your point with your daughters, when I was playing sports, we had eight millimeter film that we took. <laughs> <laughs> so you had to go develop the film and then you might see it like a week or two later and it was so expensive and you couldn't have more than one film angle because you just had this camera up on the it's hilarious when you think about it because of the expense we would get to see a couple games a year and we learned more out of those film sessions of those couple games a year than we did the rest of the i will say the rest of the coaching sessions the whole year right because the coach could tell you something, but in our minds, we're all doing the right thing. It really, video is amazing. And that's just an, an excellent point about that. Because why did everyone have video cameras around the outside of the house? Doorbells, videos everywhere. I'm finding at least that hospitals are the last, one of the last to adopt it. No, I wouldn't say the last, but one of the last to adopt it. And they, they need to break that cycle. And it's funny, I was actually talking to a hospital executive of a multiple system, and I was talking about this very issue and, you know, recording the ability, why don't, why don't they move towards this technology, which is available now. It's not widely available, but it's definitely available mm -hmm. to record everything and, and then make it analyzable. And he kind of paused and he looked at me and goes, well, I can see how it would make it safer because you could look at what went wrong and... I see how it would be good for teaching, and I see how it would be more efficient to look at how things were done, but what's your value proposition? <laughs> you kidding me? I kid you not. How long ago was this? A couple months ago. Oh my gosh. Okay. What he was really saying was it goes back to that billing code issue. There's not a billing code for it. Now, if we went to that same administrator and the government said you're going to get paid 5% more next year if you adopt this and you're going to get paid 5% less in two years if you don't, unambiguous financial proposition for them, right? Right. It just highlighted what we were talking about earlier. They're looking at the EMR as a billing tool. And that's why they're holding on to it with both hands because nothing makes hospital administrators pee their pants more than putting revenues at risk right? Agreed. We talked about that. You know, they're desperately worried about justifiably, right? I mean, I'm not making light of it. Yeah. But one, you talked about how you may have in the orthopedic surgeon standpoint, how you may have guys that's doing volume over volume over volume, and they're scared out of the wits to have to even consider letting them go. Because what's going to do to the bottom line versus worrying about the culture and the communication. And now you bring up the next vector in the room, which is 
how to say this. Well, there's no way to say it politically just say correctly. It. Yeah, just go. <laughs> Think how easy it would be. I'm comparing and contrasting, say, the GM of a pro football team, let's say, sure. and the GM of a hospital system, CEO. Think how easy it would be to the CEO of a football team if, as far as filling slots on your roster and deciding how much to pay people, if you really didn't have to consider their performance, you just looked at their resume, you looked at their, you know, what school they graduated from and a letter from their priest and a couple letters from their buddies. And you did a database search and you found out they weren't a criminal felon. So you said, okay, you're a neurosurgeon. Here's the pay scale for a neurosurgeon. You did the same thing for everybody on your roster in the operating room. Every tech, every circulating nurse, anesthesia, that basically you are filling slots based on static criteria from a credentialing file. So how many football teams do you think would fill their quarterback slot? Let's compare a neurosurgeon. They'll love this. Do you think the Packers would draft a quarterback based on that information? No. Rhetorical question. No, they'd never hire somebody with that. Do you think they would evaluate their performance based on the quarterback saying he played a good game? No, they would never do that. Do you think they would pay the quarterback based on some set salary schedule of quarterbacks three years in the league? Here's your salary schedule. No. Well, that's what's going on in medicine. How easy is it to manage a team if you don't have to look at performance and grade it and evaluate it and deal with the fallout? Pretty freaking easy. Yeah. What are you managing? And I I hate to sound derogatory, but you're basically managing slots on a schedule. Who's on call? Who can we fill? You're not asking questions. You're not analyzing anything about real performance. You're not demanding everyday, everyday incremental improvement like we do with our athletes, like we do with our Air Force pilots. Right. right. Every single day they walk in, they're expected to be better the next day. Do we say that about our surgeons? And the answer is, why not? Yeah. Before we uh, end up to a close here, I actually added one question to the end. I want to give people some insight into what you're into. So the first one is, what book you're into? In fact, my son just told me this morning, I'm reading a, a book, guys by the name of Sachs. I just ordered it on Amazon and read the abstract. The guy was Oliver Sachs. He was a neurologist that was really into recording in detailed fashion his encounters with patients. And he was one of the guys that, oh, that movie Robin Williams was in about waking up with Parkinson's or something like that was based on this guy's work. Because of the richness of the medical record, it got me interested in that. So that's, that's what I'm looking at right now. Any podcasts that you listen to regularly? I'm not a podcast guy. If I listen to a podcast uh, when I'm driving, it's usually like a novel or something like that. So I, I, I sorry, I just, uh, no. I probably should. I probably should. My wife is like a podcast fiend. I don't think she goes anywhere without something playing. I guess I'm just a, I like to read, I'm just an avid reader. I'm always, I probably read two, three, four books a, a week. I like to read. I like the imagination of it. But when I'm driving, you know, listening to a novel is fine. The only time I'm not listening to a podcast or some kind of audio of learning is when I exercise in the morning. I have to listen to music uh, at that time. That's the only time I'm not listening to something where I'm learning something. So uh, I'm a big audiobook and podcast listener. I flipped. I used to read a lot. I used to read a lot of articles. And not that I don't do that as much anymore, 
I definitely don't do it as frequently as I used to. It's all about how much information you can get in at this point. Well, see, I think you're more disciplined and excited about life than I am. You know, I'm just like on a downslide, just trying not to get too fat, too old, too fast. (laughs) Final word is yours. What would you like to leave everybody with? As I sit here for a second thinking about I don't want my comments to sound overly negative. I just want them to sound accurate. I think there's tremendous opportunity with technology. That's okay. Yeah, but I, I guess there's tremendous opportunity with technology in medicine, but we have to be realistic about what we're doing. And what we're doing right now is really poor science. So we, we should start from what the records were supposed to do, and they were supposed to be really good scientific documents that we could study and make improvement, and we shouldn't lose focus on that. We've got some really exciting tools coming down the line with the improved video archiving and analytics that we can really do some crazy interesting stuff with it if we just have the courage to dive into the pool yeah. and give up the kind of false start, I would say, that we made with the current electronic medical record. But it's pretty exciting. I mean, what AI can do with pure data is amazing. What it does with corrupted data is nothing. It really comes down to our standards, how we aggregate that information, and then how it's interpreted autonomously. So we can then take that and make a realization of where our gaps are and then where our strengths are. And we shouldn't fear the truth, you know? I think we talked about this before. We shouldn't fear the truth about our current performance. We should not fear to learn more about what we're doing. We should embrace it. This is a fantastic opportunity to really analyze what's actually happening. I think it's exciting. Yeah. A lot of people have been waiting to hear from you. Thank you very much for for taking the time again. You bet. It's been great. Great talking to you, Scott. Everyone, this is Healthcare 360. I'm your host, Scott Burgess. And through video, uh, Dr. Paul Summerside. We'll catch you next time. Take care. So what I do now is I hand it all the editing off to Michelle, my wife. Oh, awesome. I don't listen to anything until she's done with the edit. So she'll do all the editing. I give her free reign with it. She gets it back to me. So she's been doing a great job. Actually, an unbelievable job. Cool. Well, that's nice teamwork. Yeah, it's great. I want to personally thank Dr. Paul Summerside for sharing his rich experience and insight into big data and the unrealized hopes of the EMR system with the Healthcare 360 Nation. If you'd like to have a conversation or discuss the topic option on Healthcare 360, please look for the calendar link in the podcast notes below and let's set up a time to talk. I hope this conversation empowers and educates the HC360 Nation's best and brightest. If you like Healthcare 360 and enjoyed the conversation, please share this podcast and give us a review. And if you haven't already done so, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or any way you enjoy listening. If you want the conversation to continue, you can find us on Twitter at hc360podcast or at healthcare360podcast.com. Thanks again. This is Scott Burgess from all of us with the Healthcare 360 team. See you next time.